We're going to read the first couple of verses and then the portion of the third verse that we're going to cover today. Let's start reading Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us this morning. And we thank you that in the word, Jesus, you are so clearly revealed and proclaimed and exalted. And we ask that that thing that is happening in your word, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, would happen in our hearts. Lord, at the outset of this Bible study, we confess that we're too full of ourselves. It's too much about our own glory and our own nature and the way that we want to be represented. But we proclaim in our redeemed men and women that it's about your glory, Jesus, and it's about your nature, Father, and it's about representing you unto the nations. And so we ask that you would do a reviving work in our hearts this morning. Any area that's gone cold already in 2008, we ask that you revive it. Any area of our heart that's gotten hard, we ask you to break it up, Lord. As we've opened up our hearts, we endeavor to open, or open up our Bibles, we endeavor to open up our hearts and say, Come, Holy Spirit, come, King of glory. Enter in. Do a work here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would instruct us. I am unable and unworthy to do what you've called me to do apart from your anointing. And so we together would ask that every word that would come from these lips would be directly from your throne. That we would hear the very words of God and the wisdom of God, not anything from a man. So Lord, I choose to decrease that you might increase. We ask that Jesus, you'd be exalted, you'd be glorified, you'd be magnified, you'd be enthroned upon the praises of your people in this church today. For you're worthy, Jesus. Instruct us now. Enliven us, embolden us, set us ablaze for the glory of Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to bring to mind the context of the book of Hebrews. And that is that we have some Hebrew Christians to whom the letter has been written who are experiencing persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. And it's a very difficult time of persecution. And they are fearful. And some of them are feel fearful to the point that they're abandoning the faith. They're starting to second-guess their commitment to Jesus Christ. It's been difficult for them. Now, Jesus never said that following him would be easy. The modern church has said that, apart from the authority of Scripture. But Jesus never said following him would be easy. In fact, he said, you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. It's a place of self-denial, of self-sacrifice. It means the end of self. Our will is to be wholly consumed by his now. We are called by his name. Our lives are no longer our own. We've been purchased with a price. Can I get an amen? amen? But they're starting to second guess in the difficulty of Christianity. In the tumult of their experience, they are second guessing their commitment to Jesus, Yeshua, as Messiah, Mashiach. And some of them are bailing out on the fellowship. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some are now in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day, that is the day of the Lord's coming approaching. And some of them are going apostate even. And in Hebrews chapter 6, he warns them of the dire consequences of having once tasted of the things of salvation and then denying Jesus Christ because of the difficulties of life. And so this is a church, this is a people who are in danger because of difficult times. Now, we can't relate. We can't relate. The church in China, they can relate. The church in Saudi Arabia, they get it. The church in Iran, they understand. We don't understand, but there may come a day where we will taste of the things that the Hebrews are experiencing. There may come a day where our religious liberties are threatened even in this country. 
The Bible already told us. Jesus already told us. But as we move toward his coming, the world will become increasingly anti-Christ. And if we are Christians, Christians, that means trouble for you and I. So we had better listen carefully to the exhortation of the sermon that is the book of Hebrews. We better heed its message. Now, the methodology in which the author seeks to encourage them in their faith is to extol, exalt, magnify, lift up on high the person of Jesus Christ. That's his strategy. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author says, how can I encourage these weary, fearful, frightened, distraught, distraught Christians? And the Holy Spirit leads him to just so magnify the Lord, make Jesus so big in their heart, so large in their vision, that the thought of ever leaving him would seem ridiculous. That the thought of going back to the old wineskin of Judaism would seem senseless. That they would be reminded that he is the rock of their salvation. That he is the anchor of their soul. And so he tells them in verse 2 that Jesus is the final and full revelation of God. And that he is the heir of all things. That all things belong to him. All things are under his sovereignty and his dominion. Due to the fact that he is the creator of all things. This is all things were made through him. We learn in Colossians that all things were made not only through him, but by him and for him. That is, he is the center of everything. Everything exists by the power of the person of Jesus Christ. And everything exists for the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the consummation of all things. Amen? He's the consummation of the grand scheme of things, and he ought to be the consummation of the minutia of our lives. In our daily lives, as we move toward the setting of the sun, we ought to say, Jesus, it's all for you. And the decisions that we make, Jesus, it's for you. And the way that we run, and the way that we play, and the way that we spend, and the things that we proclaim, Jesus, it is all for you. And then it says here in verse 3, and he is the radiance of God's glory. Now remember, the goal of the author is to exalt Jesus. Now he's telling us something about Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature is the way the NASB says it, New American Standard, which is what I preach from. The King James says that he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. The radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature is what Jesus is. Now the two phrases, radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature, are just two ways of saying basically the same thing. They communicate the same idea. Let's unpack these ideas. Let's first deal with the idea of Jesus as the radiance and exact representation and then we'll deal with that which he radiates and represents, namely the glory and the nature of God. So let's look at that word radiance or brightness. Apogosma in the Greek, radiance or brightness, apogosma in the Greek. It's used only here in the New Testament. This is the only time in the New Testament that we find this word. It's a unique word. It comes from two other Greek words, meaning from, apo, and to shine. The idea is the shining forth of brilliant radiance, of light, of brightness, of splendor, emitted or issuing or radiating from a luminous body, such as the rays of the sun, or the light emitted from some other object. But the idea is brilliant radiance, extreme brightness, splendor that is emitted from a certain body, a certain thing. Now, it is the opposite of darkness, apalgasma is. It's the opposite of darkness. And the idea, understand, is radiation and not reflection. It's not saying that Jesus reflects the glory of God. It's saying that he radiates the glory of God. Now there's a difference. Something that is radiated comes directly from a primary source. 
Anytime we detect radiation, whether light from a distant star or from alpha, gamma, or x-rays, we know that there is a certain source that is sending that. There's a certain source from which that brightness is being emitted. And if you take the nature of that brightness or the nature of that radiation and you examine it, then you can discover the character of the source. You understand what I'm saying? The rays of the sun tell us something about the sun. The rays of the sun radiate from the sun itself. And when we experience the rays and we observe the rays, it tells us something about the sun. Now, when we look at the radiance of God's glory, the sun, the S-O-N, it tells us something about the Godhead. The more we examine the person of Jesus Christ, the more we know about God. Now, Jesus is not only the radiance of God's glory, but he is also the exact representation of his nature. Exact representation. That word in the Greek is character. Sounds like character, doesn't it? That's where we get our word, character. Exact representation. Again, it's only used here in the New Testament. The word originally denoted someone who was an engraver. And then it was used for the tool that made the engraving. And then it morphed later on to mean, as it means here, the engraving itself. Something engraven, cut in, or stamped, such as a character or a letter or a certain mark. It's the idea of like a coin. A coin is something that's stamped. You have a die, and you take the little piece of metal, and bam! And whatever image was on the die, that's now stamped perfectly in that coin. It's an exact representation or a seal like they would put on a letter in ancient times. If a dignitary or a king or royalty was sending a letter, they would seal that letter with his sign, a little drop of wax, and then he would, he would press his symbol into it, and there'd be the exact representation, and you knew who was meant by that seal, by that sign. The impression left is the exact representation of the object whose image it bears. So concerning Jesus then, as the exact representation of the nature of God, whatever the essence of deity is, Jesus is the perfect expression. Remember, these are Christians who are thinking about leaving the faith. And he's telling them, Whatever deity is, Jesus is the perfect expression. You're not going to get any closer to God anyway because he is the exact representation. He is God himself, and he is the manifestation of God on earth. He bears the very stamp of God's nature. He's God's stamp upon the world. Colossians 1.15 says it this way. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. That word in Greek is icon. It's where we get our word icon. Remember the, the isn't there a camera company, icon? That's where they get that icon. It means image. It's the same idea as character. He is the image, the exact representation, all the essence of deity. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So he is the radiance and the exact representation, but of what? We've got to understand what, from what he radiates and what it is he represents, and that is God's glory and God's nature. He's a radiation of God's glory and the representation of God's nature. The two are almost synonymous. At least they communicate the same idea. Think about it in this way. That God's glory, what does it really mean, God's glory? We're talking about the glory of God all the time. We sing glory in the highest. We sing about it. Oh, glory to God. But what does it really mean when we say God's glory? Lord, let your glory fall, right? Sing that song. It's from the Old Testament. What does it mean? Glory, the glory of God. What is it? Well, you can think about God's glory as a visible manifestation of God's nature. You can think about God's glory as the visible, tangible, experiential reality of God's nature. As one author puts it, God's glory is a spectacle of outward beauty 
as a visible sign of his moral perfection. A spectacle of outward beauty as a visible sign of his moral perfection. Now, there was a time in the Old Testament where someone was so bold as to ask to see God's glory. Who was that? Mo. Let's go check him out in Exodus 33. Exodus chapter 33. He asked to see God's glory, so if we can look at what happened after that, we can get a little understanding as to what God's glory entails. Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 18. Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. Exodus 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray thee, or beseech thee, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, show me thy glory. He's been up on the mountain with the Lord for some time. He knows the Lord more than anyone else on earth. Moses knows the Lord. And the interesting thing about this is the more he knew the Lord, the more he wanted to experience the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. A.W. Tozer has a wonderful book called The Pursuit of God. First Christian book I ever read. I highly recommend it. It's one of the greatest Christian books ever written, The Pursuit of God. On page 20, he prays a prayer. He says, Lord, I have tasted of thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. Now, isn't that what happens when we experience God? He both satisfies us like nothing else in the world, but it makes us hungry or thirsty for more of him. If you're not thirsty for the person of God, it's because you haven't been with him lately. Straight up, I'm telling you, that's the way it is. If you're not thirsty, if you're not hungering and thirsting after him, you haven't been with him. If you've been cultivating intimacy with him, you're developing an insatiable hunger for him. That's what happened to Mo. Mo's up on the mountain, nobody else around. He's just hanging with God. And he says, God, I can't take it anymore. I need more of you. And he says, show me your glory. Verse 19, and God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Notice now that God then associates his glory with his goodness. Because his glory is a beautiful display of his moral character. It's not like he's uh, the sun and he's just bright and shining just because he's gas or something. That's not it. It's a beautiful display of his moral character. So he associates his glory with his goodness. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. His glory is a representation of his name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. He reveals himself as being gracious and compassionate. Verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Now, God is spirit, Jesus told us in John chapter 14. So except for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God doesn't have an actual face. It's like an anthropomorphism, you know what I mean? He doesn't have an actual face. It just means you can't be directly in his presence. When we talk about the hand of God, it's not that there's a six-foot-wide hand, some up, where, some up where in heaven, somewhere up in heaven. Describing human, human characteristics to talk about something and dialogue about something. God says, you can't be directly in my glory. You can't get in my face and live. It's too holy. Verse 21, then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. He said, you can come by me. I'm too holy. You can't get right before me. Now trip out. Because he told Mo, you can't get right before him. But didn't Jesus tear the veil in two? And aren't we told as Christians that we can enter boldly into the throne of grace? We are afforded a privilege even Moses didn't have. He said, but there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by. 
that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. God was going to give Moses all that Moses could handle of him. All that Moses' little heart could handle, God was going to give it to him. And God said, you, you, you can't be directly in my presence. You can't be directly in my glory, but I'm going to tuft you into the cleft of a little rock right here. And I'm going to protect you from the fullness of my glory. And I'm going to pass by, and then you're going to look, and you're going to see my back. And not a real back, but the afterglow of the glory of God. The leftover radiance after his moral character has been made present on the mountain. This is where we get the phraseology afterglow from. You will see my afterglow. Now look how Moses responded. Verse 30, or chapter 34, verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him. As he called upon the name of the Lord, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren unto the third and fourth generation. Verse 8. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship him. Notice very clearly that when God reveals his glory, it has to do with his character. He said, you want to see my glory? And so he comes by and he describes to Moses his character. That he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That is the glory of God a visible manifestation of his character. And the right response is what Mo did to get down on your face and worship. To fall face down when his glory is all around. That's exactly what Moses did. He got down on his face when he understood the character of God. I don't believe it was so much what he saw with his eyes as it is what he experienced with his heart to hear the voice of the Lord say, this is who I am. Because don't you remember at the burning bush when God commissioned Mo and Mo said, Lord, they're not going to believe me. Whom shall I say has sent me? And the Lord said, tell them I am has sent you. And Mo said, that's not a lot of information. <laughs> but now he reveals who he is because Moses said, I want your glory. Because Moses was so hungry and thirsty for the person in the presence of God. God says, now I'm going to tell you who I am. And I think it was at the truth of the revelation. Not just the illumination of any subsequent light, but the truth of the revelation that caused Moses to fall on his face and worship Jesus Christ. Have you gotten on your face before Jesus Christ lately? If you haven't, brothers and sisters, this time. The more you know about him, the lower you want to get in front of him. Amen? So no man could see God in all his glory and live, but some vision of his glory was granted right here. Now, this manifest presence of God, we might call it, manifest presence of God, is known to the Jews as the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God. The manifest, radiant, glorious, visible presence of God is the Shekinah glory of God. Now, the word that's used back in Hebrews, in our text in Hebrews chapter 1, for glory is a Greek word. Old Testament's in Hebrew, New Testament's primarily in Greek. It's a Greek word, glory, it's doxa in the Greek. That's an easy one, right? You can all hang on to that. Doxa in the Greek. It means glory. Here's an idea of what it means. Divine and heavenly radiance. Remember, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Divine and heavenly radiance. Loftiness and majesty. The condition of being bright or shining like dazzling light. Now that's the definition of the Greek word which is an aspect of or a distinct of, uh, a distinction of the Hebrew word for glory which is kabod. Another easy one. You can remember that. Kabod. 
the Hebrew word for glory. Originally, the root idea is heaviness or weightiness. But when it's used of God throughout the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of times, the kabod of God, the kabod of Yahweh, kabod Adonai, it doesn't mean the weightiness or the heaviness of God. It has a metaphoric meaning, which means the worthiness of God, the character of God. The worthiness of God. It is, by definition, a state of being magnificent. Greatness, splendor, majesty, magnificence, and brilliance, which comes forth from internal character. Glorious moral attributes, excellence, perfection, and holiness. So when we talk about the glory of God in the New Testament or the Old Testament, we're talking about the character of God, the worthiness of God, His glorious moral attributes, His absolute perfection, His excellence, and His total holiness. The glory of God is what He is essentially, His unchanging essence. And Jesus is the radiation of that glory the manifestation of that glory. Now what's evident by the Lord answering Moses' prayer is that God wishes to dwell with men. He wants to be among his people, right? Right? He wants men to experience his reality and his splendor. So at certain times in the Old Testament, God would visibly manifest his glory. That Shekinah glory, which again is a representation of his nature. And that reveals to us that God has a desire for self-disclosure toward you and I. He invites us into his heart. When people have asked him, he has disclosed himself. And he intends to dwell with us. Now let's look at some other examples where God is so kind to manifest his glory. Turn back a few chapters to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. We'll start in verse 15. Here we have a similar story, but a little different description of the Shekinah glory of God. Verse 15 of Exodus 24. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory, Kabad, of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sun, I've got to stop for just a moment. Moses was six days in the presence of the Lord before the Lord spoke to him. Now, that's the opposite of how we want to be. We just say, Lord, speak to me. I'm in a hurry. I have things I want to do. There's places I want to go. I have plans. I've got stuff I want to accomplish. Speak to me now. Speak to me, Lord. Come on. We're driving in our car. We turn off the radio for four minutes. Lord, speak to me. You see, but the biblical model is that we would just marinate in the presence of God. Samuel was sleeping in the house of the Lord when the Lord called him. As a young man, just sleeping in the house of the Lord, as near as he could be to the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory of God, just marinating in the presence of God. And then the Lord spoke. Moses went up on the mountain, and he was content to just chill in God's presence. He didn't go up and say, what about this? And what are you going to do about this? And don't you know about this situation? And aren't you going to give me something here? And I need to know about that. And I need to know the plan and what's going to... He was just in the presence of the Lord. And then at the right time, the Lord spoke. There's a great lesson in that for you and I. You see, we are long on the asking, but we are short on the marinating. We need to learn to marinate in the presence of God. Verse 17. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel... The appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. There we get a picture of the glory of God. 
They weren't in it, but they saw it. Moses was privileged to be in it. But for those who saw it, his glory, the visible manifestation of his character was like a consuming fire. A consuming fire, why? Because he's holy. It was like a consuming fire. That's all they could say to describe it. Was it just looked like this mountaintop was absolutely ablaze with the glory of God, and so it was. Let's look at another example of God's manifest presence in Leviticus 9. Leviticus comes right after Exodus. Go to Leviticus 9. Leviticus 9, now we have the Lord appearing at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, that which preceded the temple. Leviticus 9, starting in verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering. Okay, so there's a service going on here at the tabernacle and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. The visible manifestation of his character, the Shekinah glory of God. Verse 24, look what happened. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. They shouted and fell on their faces. Again, it was that consuming fire. This time not on the mountain, but on the altar of sacrifice. The manifest presence of God. Let's see now in 1 Kings. Go a few books toward the back of your Bible. Go Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, this is a time after the tabernacle, and now the temple is built. Solomon has built the temple. And this is at the dedication service of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11. And it came about when the priests came from the holy place, that the cloud, the cloud again, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Chabad Adonai, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, Beit Adonai. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord to such a degree that the ministers couldn't even stand. Do you, do you begin to get a picture of the incredible moral character of God? That when there's an outward display of his inward reality, people fall down. Now I've prayed several times for our church that God would fill this place with his glory. I have it written here in my Bible. I prayed that in August of 05. I prayed that on April 30th of 07. And I prayed that this morning at 5 a.m. That God would fill this place with his glory. Because you see, it's hard to talk about the glory of God. It's better experienced. Huh? It's better experienced. But those who experienced the glory of God were busy in the things of God. Samuel was sleeping in the house of God. Moses was marinating in the presence of God. Moses was hungering and thirsting, as the psalmist said, as a deer panted after water, so my soul longs after you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, said Jesus, for they shall be satisfied. And if we're going to experience the glory of God, we've got to be seeking the face of God. Another manifestation is in the book of Isaiah, if you want to go there, way toward the end of your Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll see here a different response. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a familiar one. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. 
in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I should stop right there for just a second. We're not going to make it through this message. I should stop there for a second. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Do you notice in Isaiah's life, something had to die before he saw the Lord? Something else in which he had placed his trust, perhaps? Something that esteemed too high of a place in his life, namely the king at that time? In the year that King Uzziah died, now he was in relationship with Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I finally saw the Lord, says the prophet. Sometimes we don't see all that we want of God because something in our life has got to go. It's usually us. Usually we're the ones that are in between us and the Lord. Usually it's a degree of surrender that is required. But in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, 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 three times, because in Hebrew, that's the way that you put an exclamation point on something. They didn't have highlighters. They didn't have Word documents where they could select bold. They didn't underline. They didn't change the color. The way that they did it was to repeat it. And to say something in the very strongest sense in a Hebraic mindset was to say it three times. The Old Testament is a Hebraic mindset. And the seraphim said, God's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He just didn't know what else to say. It's the strongest way of describing the character of God. And then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Notice, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. There's that cloud again. The temple is filling with smoke. And notice that, that the thresholds trembled. The seraphim, when they sang, this giant rock stone structure in Jerusalem, it trembled at the sound of their voice. You've seen opera singers that could make a glass wiggle a little bit and maybe break. These cats made stones that were several tons tremble at their voices. If they're that awesome, how awesome must be the one about whom they are singing? How awesome must he be if all they can ever do is sing holy, holy, holy? God had to give them six wings because they can't possibly look upon him. God had to give them six wings because they're in his presence of his holiness, so they cover their feet, and they needed two to fly. God had to give them six wings because God is so holy. I want you to notice the response of God's man. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. I wonder who among us will let something die that we could get in the presence of a holy God. Who among us will let ourselves be freshly cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Not a coal from the altar, but the lamb himself slain at the altar. I wonder who among us will say, here am I, Lord, send me. You see, his whole world changed when he got just a glimpse of God's glory. You see, we have so many questions and so many wonderings and so many wanderings. But all of those things can be taken care of in just a moment of God's glory. Experiencing a moment of God's glory takes care of a lifetime of questions. Suddenly the soul becomes settled. Suddenly the soul becomes settled. I mean, the disciples thought they were going to die when they were in the boat. They were despairing of their lives. The boat was subject to the waves. Hupatasso in the Greek, it was under the waves. It was sinking. 
Their world was coming apart. They were sinking. They were losing it. They were going down. And then the king of glory showed up. And the king of glory calmed the winds and the waves. And in the moment of his glory, their souls were forever settled. It may be tumultuous times for you. It may be difficult. It might be scary. But the king of the glory, the king of glory wants to enter into your life. He wants to reveal himself to you. Will you call upon him? Will you hunger and thirst for him? Finally, Ezekiel, the final revelation of God's glory that we'll look at. Go Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel's having a vision here. And he sees some heavenly beings, some seraphim type things, and these wheels spinning up in heaven, and all this trippy stuff in the first 25 verses. And then in verse 26, it says, Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. Like lapis lazuli. What is that? Is that Italian food? What lapis lazuli? A pasta dish? What is that? It's like a sapphire. It's like a blue stone, a sapphire in appearance. There was a throne that was something like a sapphire in appearance. And on that which resembled the throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. The appearance of a man. It wasn't a man. But I, Ezekiel, don't know how else to describe it. The throne wasn't a sapphire. I just don't have other words to put to it. I just spent 25 verses describing the living creatures. Those were easy for me. They only had four heads, four faces, no big deal. But now this throne thing, I don't have words for something like a sapphire. And then there appeared something like a man. Verse 27. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal, something like glowing metal. I can't describe it. That looked like fire, glowing metal like fire, all around and within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was radiance. There's that word. There was radiance all around him. As the appearance of a rainbow, kind of like a rainbow, in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. 25 verses describing these other living creatures in heaven. And then he gets to God and he says, I don't know, man. It was just really gnarly. And all I could do was fall on my face before him. All these Old Testament manifestations of God's glory, the visible representation of his nature, are incomplete. They're glorious, they're magnificent, they're wonderful, but they are incomplete. And it isn't until Jesus comes that humanity truly experiences the glory of God. Because Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. All of those things, as profound as they were, as wonderful as they were, you need to believe this, all of those things, as wonderful as they were, were just shadows they were just foretastes. They were just a little bit of the glory that was to come, the glory that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. We have the fulfillment. We have the fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. Go to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. John 1 1. Familiar territory.
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's it talking about? He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Who's that? John the Baptist. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So we see here that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory represented as light here. Because what did Ezekiel say? He said it was like light. I don't know. It was just brightness and radiance and like a rainbow on a rainy day and like a, 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 a emerald, like a, it was just, I don't know. It was just light, gnarly, gnarly. Jesus comes manifest in human flesh and the description is, the light has come into the world. Now, when the incarnation took place, he didn't come as dazzling light. He's light, but it's not that radiate, radiating, dazzling brightness. We, we get a taste of that on the Mount of Transfiguration, don't we? But you see, that's too gnarly for people to deal with. When Peter saw that on the Mount Transfiguration, he said, um, should I pitch a tent? He said, should I just stay here? Should we make some tabernacles? What do we do? And when people saw it in the Old Testament, they just fell down. You see, Jesus came to communicate and to commune with. So he couldn't come as dazzling light, but he's light nonetheless. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When we see him in glory, when he comes again, Matthew 24 says that when he comes, he comes on the, on the clouds with great glory, and it's like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Then we're going to see it like it is. And when we go to be with him, we'll see it like it is. But when he came, he came to communicate and to commune. And so he couldn't be dazzling light like in the Old Testament because people couldn't handle it. People couldn't interact with it, and interaction was the goal. And so then, the glory of God is wrapped in human flesh. He comes in human bodily form to shine the light of God and to reveal the nature of God by communicating and communing. Verse 14. Verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. These are Jews who knew the Old Testament. They knew what they were saying when they were saying glory. It wasn't dazzling light, but it was glory nonetheless. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace communing and truth communicating. Verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, or God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. See, when Jesus came, the glory of God came to earth. And what Jesus does is explains God to us. That word, he explained him, explained is a Greek word, exegesis. You Bible students know that word. You exegete scripture. It means to lead out the meaning of. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He describes, he explains, he makes plain the meaning and the character and the nature of God. Being with God, he is God, but he is also the manifestation of God, so that by and through him, we learn exactly who God is. He is the brightness and exact representation of God's glory and nature. 
F.F. Bruce says, just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ, the glorious light of God shines in the hearts of men and women. Now look at this. Here's a sobering verse concerning these things. 2 Corinthians 4, I'll put it up on the PowerPoint for you, verses 3 through 6. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, if somebody doesn't see the glory of Jesus Christ, if they don't see the reality of who he is and the good news about him, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, lowercase g, notice who's that? Satan. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That ought to terrify you to prayer. That if somebody's not recognizing Jesus Christ for who he is, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their eyes that they might not see. How do we undo that? We bring that down through prayer. Through prayer and through preaching. We pray and we preach. You pray and I'll preach. We pray and we preach. I'll pray and then you preach. We pray and we preach. And it undoes the work of the enemy. But it says in the next verse, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See that? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. John 8, 12, Jesus, it says here, again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The question is, if in the Old Testament it was this brilliant splendor, but in the New Testament it's in human form, how does Jesus radiate the glory of God? How is that made tangible? How is that made manifest if he was in a body that just looked like ours? Well, in the same way that we manifest who we really are by what we do, what you do is who you are. What you say is not who you are. That's who you pretend to be. What you do exposes who you are. So Jesus, as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of nature, exposes, explains to us who God is by what he did. Remember, he came and said, I do the works of the Father. Now, what kind of things did Jesus do? What does Jesus reveal about God? Well, Jesus heals the broken. Jesus makes the crippled to walk and the blind to see. Jesus called men and women to be with him. Jesus freed the tormented person. Jesus touched the untouchable leper. He hears the brokenhearted. He raises the dead. He forgives the sinner. He held the children. He fed the hungry. He calms the storm. He teaches the multitudes. These are the things that Jesus did in order to explain God to us. In case humanity didn't know where to go when they were brokenhearted. In case humanity didn't know where to go when they were hungry. The widow who's lost her son, if she didn't know where to go, Jesus explains that we can turn to God by the things that he did. R. Kenton Hughes says, Jesus is a superior revelation of God. When we see him, we know just what the God of the universe is like. We know how he thinks. We know how he talks. We know how he relates to people. God has spoken in his son. It is the, it, it is the ultimate communication, his final word, his consummate eloquence, all oh, the superiority of the son. So if you want to know God more, you got to press into the person of Jesus Christ, the manifestation. Tear into the Gospels with every fiber of your being. Open up the Gospel accounts and begin to read your Bible. Read it with eyes of faith. Read it hungering after the person of Jesus Christ. And you will be satisfied. But beware, Jesus issued a warning, John 3.19. And this is a judgment that the light is coming to the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You see, it's undeniable who Jesus is and yet some deny him. Why? Because they love darkness rather than light. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They love darkness rather than light. 
John 12, 13, Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. The darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. You see, the goal and the occupation of the Christian is to walk with Jesus Christ, to walk in the light. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. So now we're finished. Let me say this. Jesus is the light of the world. He radiates the light of God. But I want to give you a simple point of application now. Please give me your attention for one more minute. A simple point of application. Jesus radiates the glory of God. We are to reflect the glory of God. Jesus radiates it. We are to reflect it. We don't have the same nature as him. We're not the dazzling light. He is. But he did say in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. You see, Jesus is the big light, the radiant light. We are the little lights. He's the big light. We're the little lights. And just as he explained to the world who God was by what he did, we are to reflect on the world who God is by what we do. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what the Christian is supposed to do. We're to love people in such a way, serve people in such a way, help people in such a way that they want to give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That makes Christianity very simple. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works not hear your preaching, though we do it. But they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. So Jesus radiates. He's the actual light. We just reflect. You know what it's like? I swear I'm almost done. You know what it's like? It's like the sun and the moon. It's like the sun and the moon. Jesus radiates. He is light. The sun radiates light. The moon has no light of its own. You understand that, right? You understand the moon has no light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. But when it's a full moon and we go out, you go down on the beach and it's reflecting on the water and you say, oh, look at the light of the moon. Oh, it's beautiful. Look at the, the light of the moon. But it has no light of its own. It's just a dark rock floating there. But when the light of the sun hits the moon, it reflects that light onto the world, and it's beautiful. Now, we're just like that dead rock floating around in space. And the occupation, please listen, the goal of the Christian is to keep himself in the light of the sun, the S-O-N, that he might reflect that light onto the world. Be a big old full moon shining for Jesus that we might reflect his light onto the world. But in order to do that, we got to keep ourselves in the light of the sun. Now, the opposite of full moon is when there's no moon. What's that called? New moon or something? New moon. There's no moon. Well, when is there no moon? There's actually still a moon. You can't see it. Why? Because the world has positioned itself between the sun and the moon. The world got in the way. It eclipsed the moon from the light of the sun so that the light of the sun no longer hits the moon. It's in darkness. Christian, you've got to keep the world from coming between you and Jesus Christ. We've got to do everything we can to reflect the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. And that requires that we get the world out of the way. The worldly thinking, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God, but we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so I'm issuing a clarion call to get a little bit of the world out of our Christianity and let a little bit more of the light of the sun shine on us and watch what happens. 
But you got to make a conscious decision to get the world out of the way because brothers and sisters, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And if we would just reflect who Jesus is in the things that we did, they would knock our doors down. They would come here saying, we wish to see Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you for these truths. They're glorious. They're good, Lord. Lord, we want now, if by grace, you would let us taste more of your glory. Let us experience more of you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come. And we ask that you would give us a wherewithal to repent this morning of worldliness that's crept in, of things that are getting in the way. Any king whose eye is that need to die, Lord, help us that we might enter into your glory. Help us, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, manifest the glory of the Father in this place. If you're hungry for the presence of God, I invite you to come and get on your face like they did. I believe the Lord will meet you here. Let's seek after him.